Verse 28 of chapter 6. When Yahweh spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, he said to him, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I am telling you. But Moses said before Yahweh, since I speak with difficulty, why should Pharaoh listen to me? Okay, once again. Verse 1 of chapter 7. So Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you like a god to Pharaoh. Now, there are very few times that humans are ever said to be a god. Okay, and the only time you really see that is in like, um, there's a couple places in Psalms. Psalm 40 is one of them. I can't remember what the other one is. And like here. And this idea that he's going to be represented. We already talked about what that meant, so I'll move on. Your brother Aaron will be your prophet, and you are able to speak to him. Everything that I command to you and your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh that he must release Israelites from this land. So we already talked about that order last week. God to Moses, Moses to Pharaoh, sorry, to Aaron, Aaron to Pharaoh. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and although I will multiply by signs and my wonders in all the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. I will reach into Egypt and bring out my regiments, my people, the Israelites, from the land of Egypt with a great axe of judgment. Then the Egyptians will know that I am Yahweh when I extend my hand over Egypt and bring the Israelites out from among them. So here's where God really clearly lays out his purpose. I'm going to judge Egypt for their sins. I'm going to display my wonders so all will know that I'm God. Okay, first one, I'm going to judge Egypt for their sins. Second, I'm going to display my wonders so all will know that I'm God. And three, so that I may redeem you out of your slavery. And that implies repentance as well as salvation. Those are the three major purposes for these plagues, to judge Egypt for their sins. Number two, to display the wonders of God so they will know who he is. And number three, to lead them in repentance, which will lead to the redemption. This is why God is doing it. Now, verse 6, you've got to give Moses and Aaron credit. Moses isn't really excited about this. He doesn't think anything's going right, but he still says they did just as Yahweh commanded them. Now, Moses was 80 years old and Aaron was 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, very rarely are you told the age of people in the Bible. God doesn't really care about ages. But the reason is, the scene is kind of interesting. You've got these two 80-year-old men, one of which is like, I don't want to do this. (laughs) And they're standing before a young, powerful, fearsome, uncontested Pharaoh of the most powerful nation of that time period. Anybody watching this is going to think, this is so pathetic. Those old guys need to go home. (laughs) And that's the point. The point is that God can use anybody. And over and over, God is emphasizing this. No faith, God is still going to use him. He's been a nobody for his entire life practically. God is still going to use him. He's an old man who's supposed to not be able to be useful anymore. God is going to use him. Verse 8 of chapter 7. And Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Do a miracle, 
And you say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh. It will become like a snake. Once again, he says, Aaron's staff. Aaron's holding the staff of God right now. Not Moses, because he lost that right with his lack of faith. It will become like a snake. When Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, they did so, just as Yahweh had commanded them. Aaron threw down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became like a snake. And once again, we mentioned this last week. Why? Because that snake is a symbol of both the protection of Egypt as well as a symbol of chaos. So by doing this, God is showing that he ultimately has total control over chaos, and he's the only one that can protect people by from the fact that, bam, bam, he can switch it back and forth without contest. Then Pharaoh also summoned the wise men and the sorcerers and the magicians of Egypt by their secret arts, and they did the exact same thing. Each man threw down his staff, and the staffs became snakes. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs, Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he did not listen to them just as Yahweh had predicted. Did they really turn staffs into snakes? Don't know. It says by their secret arts that there's sorcery, there's magic here. But that word secret arts can also be translated as trickery. So is it possible that they did some kind of a magic show where they threw down the staff and it became a snake? Or there's actually certain snakes you can actually like if you hit them just right they'll st- like a rat snake when we we're at camp you grab the tail of a rat snake you swing it up smack it on the ground it doesn't really kill them it stuns them you run your hand up and you grab their neck and they're stiff like a staff it's possible they could do that and then they threw it down and the snake un- unshocked itself if that's even a word and um began to crawl around now there's a part of it's like well that's legitimate I mean, there's a lot of magicians out there today who are really clever and can deceive a lot of people. But at the same time, the ancient people were not morons. I know, like, the History Channel and everything makes you want to think that they're all dumb and that kind of stuff. I mean, they built the pyramids. We still can't figure out how they did that. So, and they they understood things about the solar system that we're just now beginning to discover. They weren't dumb. At the same time, this could be understood as magic and witchcraft. That's surreal. The Bible never denies the power of the demonic realm. It denies the all superiority of the demonic realm. And we see that even with the demoniac garrison next to the Galilee. That guy was strong enough with a demon to break chains and all kinds of stuff. But that's not the point. Okay, so one, you could get really focused on this and kind of miss the whole point. Two, you can get really defeated in this and say, wait a minute. God's not really that great if they're able to do the same thing. What makes that impressive? Two things. First, God already said that he was going to intentionally build up. That he was going to start small and build up. So this isn't like God's like, there's my silver bullet wow magic trick. Okay, He's building up. He's starting small in purpose in order that Pharaoh's heart would be hardened so he can do more and bigger and better and better and better. The other thing that's really the focus here is that Yahweh's serpent swallowed both of theirs up. That's the real focus. The real focus is that no matter what they think they have as power, their power was easily swallowed up. God is never denying the power of Pharaoh. 
or the power of a demonic realm. What he's denying is that that power is any threat to him. And that's important. We can't go to one extreme where we lose our faith in the power of God to overcome the world. But we can't go to the other extreme where we begin to think that the world has no power at all. Neither one glorifies God. And neither one is realistic. And so this is important for you to understand. that The true point is that their power isn't sufficient to conquer Yahweh's power. Two things we need to talk about. The purpose of the plagues. Because now we're going to get into the ten plagues. We've already kind of mentioned the three purposes of judgment, um, display the wonders of God, but what is God going to do here? In Genesis, we talked about the fact that the creation was described as formless and empty, darkness and chaos. Life cannot exist in a formless and empty, dark, chaotic state. So one of God's greatest acts is that he first begins his revelation of who he is by bringing light to the darkness, subduing the chaos, and forming and filling that which had no form and fill. In that sense, he brings order to all parts of creation to create an environment that produces life where God can dwell with humanity in a creation that is orderly in order to have true rest with no worries, no fears. Now, when humanity decides to rebel against God and live contrary to how he designed them, one of the reasons that God says don't do this and don't do that and don't do that is not because he's a fun killer or he likes throwing around his power. is because he designed you to function a certain way. And when you operate outside of his design, this brings dysfunctionality into your life. And we know this. People who choose to rebel against God and sexual conduct and the way that they talk about each other and the way that they live and the way they decide to kill or steal or gossip or whatever, it ends up destroying other people's lives and it destroys their lives. Maybe not physically, but emotionally, socially, mentally, and all this kind of stuff. And they don't have life to the fullest. They don't have rest. They don't have contentment and satisfaction. So God knows how he designed the universe to be orderly, and he knows how he designed us in order to fit into that, in order to have shalom, peace. And not just peace on earth because there's no wars, but peace as in being content and satisfied with no worries because you're functioning the way that you should be in a world the way it should be, so there's rest. And that's why God is going to give you the law, because the law is this is how you have rest. If you do this, as he says to Cain, then will it not go well for you? So, because humanity decides to go contrary to this, it brings, basically, ruin into their lives. And because their ruin that they're bringing in their lives is amplifying to such an extent, it's ruining other people's lives, and it's ultimately ruining God's creation. And God cannot allow that. And so what God does is he brings the flood. And the flood cleanses creation of this ruin, of this chaos. But in order to do that, he decreates, so to speak, the world. By bringing the rains and the clouds, the sun, the moon, the stars go away. The rain coming down and the water coming up means that all you can see and everything is dying. Which means if you're standing on the boat after the end of 40 days of raining, all you see 
is a massive watery chaos that is formless and empty and darkness is everywhere. And so God did not literally decreate the world, but he symbolically, and in some ways did literally with the humans and the animals, decreate the world as a form of judgment. But just as the wind of God in Genesis, the Ruach, the breath, the spirit, the wind, comes over the surface of the waters and begins to subdue the chaos, so God sends his wind in chapter 8 of Genesis to make the waters recede, where he begins to reform and refill and bring light once again and bring form, um, subdue, uh, subdue everything, so that Noah gets off the boat as a second Adam and a new creation that is now cleansed. Unfortunately, the Tower of Babel shows that humanity just goes right back into that cycle again. And that's what you must understand here. With these ten plagues, these ten plagues match up with the days of creation. And just like Egypt is doing exactly what the world had done before the flood, and they're living contrary to God's design, they have brought ruin in their life. They're ruining the people around them, Israel specifically. They're ruining the land. And God is going to bring ten plagues that match up with all the days of creation. And he's going to decreate Egypt. So that when he's done, buildings are destroyed. Crops are destroyed. They're in darkness. Their firstborn sons are dead. Monuments are destroyed. Their army is going to be swallowed by the sea. And Israel is going to walk out. Because Egypt has been decreated. And what you need to understand is that we know ultimately all empires fall. God is not bringing upon them something that never would have happened. He's escalating the inevitable of what would have happened. If they continued to live this way, eventually something in creation would have done this to them. Foreign armies, economic collapse, famine or whatever. All God is doing is escalating it to a level that it happens instantaneous. In order to make his point, you're living contrary to my will. Does that make sense? And so he's decreating. And that's another thing to help you understand, like, how could God do this? Well, part of it is, one, he has every right to do it. Because he is the God that gave them life. And he's the God that put them in the land. That's the point that Genesis is making. The second thing is he has every right to do it because they have sinned. And the third reason is because this is what's going to happen eventually. All he's doing is speeding up the process. You have to realize most miracles and most judgments are just speeding up what would have already happened. And so this is what God is doing. It's decreating Egypt, so to speak. Now, there's a pattern with these plagues. The plagues themselves have a structure and a pattern to them. The first three plagues, blood, frogs, and biting insects, were relatively brief and did not cause any death. So they start off pretty, they're just annoying. Then more, so then we get to the next three plagues, plagues four, five, and six, swarming insects and animal disease and skin sores were much more harmful and gradually eventually led to the death of animals and some of the humans. Then we get to the next three plagues, um, seven, eight, and nine, and these hails, locusts, and darkness are more severe and end up devastating all of Egypt economically and killing lots of people. So he does three groups of three, and they escalate to finally the last one, the tenth one, is in a category of its own self where the most significant and most important people in all of Egypt end up dying, the firstborn. 
There is also a warning given in the first two plagues, but no warning in the third plague. And then this pattern is repeated. So they get a warning for two plagues, which this is the love of God too. He tells them in many places, go, get your animals, take them inside, because there's going to be hail that's going to kill everything. And he says it's to the Egyptians as well. He gives two warnings. But because most of them don't heed the warning, he doesn't give a warning the third time. And then he gives a warning on the four and five, and they don't really heed it. But by the time he gets to that third one, they are heeding it. The Egyptians are listening to the warnings and they're bringing their animals and a lot of them live. And this shows that even after all this stubbornness and the fact that he has to have 10 plagues, he still cares about the Egyptians enough to give them warnings and tell them what's coming and how to protect themselves. And then the 10th plague, he gives an ultimate warning. If you just kill a lamb, put the blood on your doorpost, your firstborn son will live. And so this is the pattern that you see here. Warning, warning, no warning. And then the other thing that you see is the rod of Aaron, or the rod of Moses, is mentioned in the first three, but there's no rod mentioned in the second three. And the rod of Moses is mentioned in the following three. So you get the rod of Aaron, rod of Aaron, rod of Aaron. Then nothing is mentioned for the next three, and then it becomes the rod of Moses on those last three of those three sets of three. And so this is a pattern here. So not only is God decreating the world, but as he decreates Egypt, he's doing it very orderly. Because even when he decreates and brings chaos, he still does it in an orderly way because he's a God of order. And that's important for you to understand. Now, some critics have also said, well, this is so epic. This would have been recorded by the Egyptians, wouldn't it? I mean, why don't we have this in any historical records? Well, first you must understand is people in the ancient world never recorded anything bad about themselves. I think I mentioned this several weeks ago. They never recorded anything bad about themselves. Okay, if we didn't have free journalism, that would probably be true in the government of America as well. There's a lot of things the government tries to cover up and hide until those nosy little journalists find it. CNN are the Republicans' bane of existence, and Fox is the bane of the Democrats' existence. Okay, so they've tried to find those things out. In the ancient world, the king is absolute power. And if you publish anything bad about him, you die. And we mentioned probably the only reason the Hyksos invasion is mentioned is because you can talk about how awesome Egypt is when they drive them out. It's like the only reason we record the British redcoats coming in is because we were able to defeat them. They never recorded anything about themselves. So that's important for you to understand. Now, some critics have also said these plagues are just natural events. I mean, locusts, those show up a lot of times. We've seen hailstones that comes down. Okay, frogs kind of overwhelming. This is all new stuff. You guys have just kind of made a big deal of and called God, 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 God. But why don't you do that today when you see that happening in the world? Well, there's several reasons for that. First, even though many of these plagues are very common in Egypt, they are intensified beyond normal. The numbers of deaths, the intensity of these plagues, the number of the frogs, the number of the insects have never been seen anywhere in any natural plague. They're intensified in a way that you've never seen in normal plagues. Second, the fact that Moses predicts these things in advance, and it's not like I predict the end of the world in 20, 30, or 40, or whatever, and then I'm dead before that time comes. I mean, this is going to happen tomorrow, and it happens. And not just like, oh, you got lucky. He got lucky 10 times in a row. 
Okay, so the, 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 which he didn't, but that's the point. So the point is that he's predicting each one of these consistently over and over and over again. Third, all these plagues came within an 11th month period. Yes, we've seen many plagues, but you don't see like 10 huge, intensified, predict in advance plagues all happening all 11 months. Okay, we've never seen that. Yes, we've gotten hit by multiple hurricanes, but not. But that we understand that it's hurricane season. That's natural, but not such a variety of wide-scale natural events all happening all at once within an 11-month period that has never been seen before. Fourth, the plagues are discriminatory. They are targeting people who are not demonstrating faith. When have you ever seen natural plagues target people who do not obey God? And such diversity. Over and over, we're going to be told that Israel was not affected by the plagues. How do you have total darkness in the entire land except for just in this little place of Goshen? The sun does not work that way. Okay, even an eclipse, everything is still covered with light. Everything just equally gets dim. Not like all of a sudden Columbus is light and everybody else starts because eclipse just happens to be on this side so the fact that this all happens to only certain people suggests that it's not natural fifth they gradually increase in severity of nature and that's important too that this pattern that you see is important and finally too is like i mentioned several weeks ago god is the author of all creation and nature this is how he demonstrates his power. You can look at it and say, well, they're just natural events. Your God is pathetic. Or you can look at it the other way and say, well, if he's the creator of all nature, then obviously he's able to control it. And the fact that he can control all this and make all these happen shows that he is in control of nature. When was the last time anybody in America could control nature? All these things suggest that this really truly is not just natural phenomenons that are happening. There's something truly divine happening here. Does it make sense? Yeah. Any questions? One last thing. Hardening of Pharaoh's heart. This is the first time that it's mentioned that Pharaoh's heart is hardened. And that is important for you to understand as well. What does that mean? Well, last week I briefly mentioned that the heart is the seat of will, volition, and desire. And the word hardened just means to strengthen which means that God is strengthening Pharaoh's will against him. Now, in order to strengthen something means that it has to have something to begin with. A lot of people bring this into the predestination versus free will argument, but that's wrong. Okay, now I am not going to talk about predestination and free will tonight, okay? That's a whole other, like, epic lesson in itself. Here's the reality. That argument has everything to do, our argument today in modern day Christianity in America of predestination free will has everything to do with whether God predestines, chooses people to be saved and chooses for people not to be saved. Salvation is not the issue here. Okay, this isn't about Pharaoh being predestined against salvation. This is about Pharaoh being hardened to not let Israelites go. So first, you cannot bring this into that discussion because they're two completely different things. This is not about salvation. This is about whether I let my slaves go or not. So that's very important for you to understand. So this cannot speak to that. 
Paul will bring the hardening of Pharaoh into chapter 9, 10, 11 of Romans, but he's using that in a completely different way. It does kind of speak to predestination, but doesn't really, but that's a Romans class, okay? Because that's like, we have to go through the first eight chapters before you can even understand 9, 10, 11, before you can even understand how he's using Pharaoh. And we don't have time for that because Romans is complicated. So you need to understand that this isn't about salvation. Two, there's a pattern here. There are five cycles here where you will see that God will say, I am going to harden. He gives a warning, an ultimatum. You can let my people go or experience my wrath. He gives an ultimatum. Pharaoh then makes a choice to say, I will not. And then Yahweh hardens Pharaoh's heart two times. So basically he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no. So God brings the plague. And then the next plague, it says, God hardened his heart. And then he brings a plague. And then the next plague, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And he brings a plague. And then God gives an ultimatum on the next plague. And it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And then the next two plagues, God hardens his heart. And so what you see is a cycle that God is only doing what Pharaoh has already initiated in his own heart. That's why it's called hardening. It's already hard to begin with. So we're told that Pharaoh's heart is already hard by the fact that he's declared himself a god way before Pharaoh's even come on the scene. And God gives him ultimatum, let my people go. And Pharaoh, of his own choice, says no. And he hardens his own will against God. He digs his heels in like a little kid and says no. And God says, fine, I'm going to make you honor that decision for two cycles or two plagues. Then he backs off and gives Pharaoh another choice. And then he comes in and says, fine, you have to honor that. And that's what you see here is these patterns of God saying, you've got a choice. Pharaoh makes a choice. And God holds him to that choice for two plagues. And then he backs off again and gives him a choice. And so what you actually see here is a very complicated exchange of human responsibility and the sovereignty of God. It is not, is God sovereign and predestined? Or do we have human free will and responsibility? It is yes. It's both. And you see this. Okay, you see Joseph who says, what you, through your own choices, intended for evil, God, through his sovereignty and predestination, he doesn't use his words, but that's the implication, used for good. When we get to Peter and Acts, he says, you crucified Jesus through the will of God. And you're like, which one is it? And the authors are, yes. Just like God is three distinct beings with their own consciousness and their own personality, but they're one being with one person and one consciousness. How does that work? I have no idea. How is Jesus simultaneously God and human without mingling and confusion and without separation? I don't know. How is God's spirit only and Jesus is human in heaven today, yet there's the one God? We live with these paradoxes all the time. Paradoxes mean that it seems like it contradicts itself, but it really doesn't. We just are not intelligent enough to figure it out. Yet when it comes to predestination free will, we have to somehow figure it all out. Why? Because my right to do what I want is one of the most important things in America. We're, re- we're willing to relinquish to the mystery of God, Trinity, and God-man 
but we're not willing to relinquish free will and predestination because my right, my right, my right. America was built on my right to do whatever I want. And so you need to understand that that is a modern-day American struggle that we have that no one really else in the world or anywhere on the Bible had. They were content to say, yes, it's both. So in some sense, you have to realize that God is demonstrating his absolute sovereignty to do whatever he wants with our lives because he is God and he has that right. But at the same time, because he's a God that loves us and wants us to freely love him by our own choice because he wants a relationship more than anything, he also allows Pharaoh to exercise his own will. And so Pharaoh hardens his heart and God hardens his heart and they somehow both work together. And that's my best explanation because I'm not God. Does that kind of make sense? Now, we could talk about that more with other passages, but for tonight, you just need to know that these are both working together in the cyclical pattern that God is doing. Pharaoh has a choice, yet God wants something to happen. And they're both working together. And I do not know how it totally works in a cosmic sense. And I'm okay with that. And the Bible never, ever gives you an explanation, which means the Bible wants you to be okay with it too. And that's where faith comes in. Now, it doesn't mean that there's nothing wrong with struggling with it because the Bible would never have revealed it to you if it was wrong to struggle and ask and try to figure it out. But ultimately, we have to just step out in faith and say, but he's good. I have a choice, and yet he is sovereign, and he is good. And that's where it ultimately comes down to. Make sense? All right. If you have any other questions about that or it's not clear, just come and ask me afterwards. I'm more than willing to talk about it, but I can't promise to have any more answers. So.